trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I gotta say, did you miss me? <laughs> uh, you may have noticed uh, I uh, took a little bit of a leave of absence last week, at least from from doing this program, and it was for good reason. My friend Bill Colley, who's a morning host in Twin Falls, Idaho, was called up for jury duty, and uh, Bill graciously asked me if I would fill in for him on the radio, which I did, and that was a lot of fun. It was it was it was wonderful to be sitting back uh, behind the microphone in a real honest to goodness radio station, and uh, fun to work the phones and, uh, and the the interesting thing about this if you pull up a chair here let me let me set up the slide projector I'll share a few things with you. This was the very first full time gig that I had was was at this particular radio station in Southern Idaho. I'd been working part time at another station and. I uh, ended up getting a full-time gig. At, this was, at the time, the big country station. I mean, they, they dominated the market. And I, I think I lasted about a month. And then I quit. And there's times I still kind of wonder, why, why on earth did I quit? And I'll just be honest with you. It's because uh, my, my program director, I thought, was a jerk. <laughs> I just was like, I love, uh, I love radio, but I really don't like working for you. So I went back to the station that I was working at before, ended up getting a full-time job there. And, uh, and on went my, my career path. And, you know, I kind of feel bad for, for, for quitting. That, that has always haunted me a little bit. Uh, you were a quitter, bro. But it's been, uh, it's been fun to reconnect and to find that uh, there's still a handful of people that, that I once uh, worked with in radio here in, in the Magic Valley area of southern Idaho. But, uh, wow, you know, a lot changes. It's been it's been about thirty eight years, I guess, since since that uh, that fateful time, and uh, I'm still trying to decide, you know, if this is you know if radio is something I'd want to do when I grow up, but uh, you know that's a ways off. I still have time to prepare. Nonetheless, lots happened over the time that uh, that I wasn't doing this program, and and I don't even know where to begin. So uh, I, I kind of want to start on a positive note, right? Rather than just, uh, so let me tell you what's wrong with the world, because that's the easiest thing in the world to do is to just point out, here's everything that's wrong. And if, if, if that's your goal, well, you're in a very target-rich environment right now because there's a ton of stuff that is, is more or less going off the rails. But I, I would instead like to focus for a moment on what it takes to be a counterforce to everything that's going wrong. Now, I'm going to stop short of suggesting fixing the world in its entirety and making it perfectly right and proper. I don't think that's possible, and and I don't want to sound defeatist, but we do live in a fallen world, and the rules that, that govern this world, uh, they, they don't stop bad things from happening or for people pursuing power with bad motives and so forth. Nonetheless, I do think that every one of us has a duty, especially if we recognize right and wrong. If we have that conscience, that light within us that says, you know, I could do something here, then I think we have a duty to act on that. And changing the world for the better is is something that requires enough effort. Not everybody is willing to do it. Dan Sanchez, who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, 
has a marvelous essay titled Raise a Standard for Others by Improving Yourself. True leaders and teachers rally volunteer, voluntary followers and students. And I would, I would add to it my own little caveat. I think that, that uh, one of the real tests of leadership is, are you developing followers or are you developing leaders? Because my goal is to, to try to persuade people that uh, I don't need you to follow me. I don't need to, you know, to need a big audience of acolytes following me around. Yes, Brian, you are so wise. You are so smart. Um, I mean, it's, it would be nice. I'm not going to lie. My ego would be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> but enough about me. What do you think about me? No. Um, we need people who are willing to step up and be leaders. And so what I'm trying to do is persuade you that not only do you have it in you, but if you recognize that there's something that, that needs to be addressed, you don't have to wait for permission. Frankly, the people in authority who are trying to, to keep you and me in a box they're not going to give you permission. So it's got to be something you recognize and that you have enough conviction. You're willing to actually step up and just and start making the changes that need to happen. Well, I want to share Dan Sanchez's take on this just because it's it's so on target for, for the proper way to do this. The, the way to, to get good results without just becoming a, a what's, the, what's the word, kind of a... a uh, not mentor, but uh, what do we, oh, the word escapes me here from it. The harder I grasp for it, the, the quicker it runs out of my grip. But uh, when, when we idolize people and we put them up on a pedestal, you know, the, the guru, that's the one I'm looking for, guru. You don't need a guru and you don't have to be a guru. You just have to be a decent person that other people can look to and go, it can be done. It's really that simple. Uh, Dan starts with a quote from Leonard E. Reed from a 1958 uh, writing called Why Not Try Freedom. It says the individual is the only one who can attend to the degree and perfection of his own variability. Others cannot, in a creative sense, do anything to him. If they would help, they must limit themselves to what they can do for him. For him, they can do little beyond attending, their own, attending to their own emergence materially, intellectually, spiritually. They can, by precept and example, set a standard to which he can repair. They can have goods and services to exchange or knowledge and insight to offer. But whether or not he takes advantage of their offerings is a matter for his own election. No one else can decide. It's pretty insightful. And Dan says the best way to improve others is to focus on improving yourself. The better you become, the more you will inspire others to emulate your conduct and hearken to your words. Individuals will voluntarily follow your standard. Now, he says the word standard in this context is derived from the military flags that would be raised above the dust and smoke of battle to visibly mark the location of the field leader and thus create a rallying point for the troops. Dan Sanchez says this is an apt metaphor for life in general. Everyone sometimes feels aimless and lost in the fray of the day. At such times, we look for leaders to emulate and teachers to learn from. We especially seek out individuals who evince mastery, exemplars who clearly know what they're doing and what they're talking about. He says, and the best way to manifest mastery is not to proclaim it, but rather to attain it. The more you cultivate yourself, the more you will naturally radiate the evidence of mastery. That evidence will be a shining standard that others will look to for direction and encouragement. That's how true leadership and education works. 
Now, the opposite approach is to prowl around the battlefield of life, trying to dragoon unwilling followers and students, hectoring them about where to go, how to behave, and what to think. But Dan says such a futile endeavor will cause you to neglect your own participation in the struggle, making it more likely that you yourself will fail and that your standard will fall in the mud. Then you won't be able to truly lead or teach anyone. He says there's a crucial difference between leading and driving, between education and indoctrination. Leaders of free men and women are not drivers of cattle or conscripts, and teachers of free minds are not inculcators of mindless conformity. As Leonard E. Reed wrote in Students of Liberty back in 1950, a person does not become a teacher either by self-designation or by designation of a third party, government, or other. A teacher is designated solely and exclusively by the student. That's rather profound. Dan says similarly, no one becomes a leader through self or government appointment. A true leader is appointed solely and exclusively by the follower. And followers and students are naturally drawn to the high standards of conduct and understanding that can only be raised by individuals genuinely dedicated to self-improvement. In fact, he has a quote here from George Washington. uh, According to uh, Governor Morris, let us raise a standard to which the the wise and honest can repair. This is from Governor Morris's uh, oration upon the death of George Washington. So yeah, if you're you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed and, and maybe uh, things seem hopeless in some area or another, the solution is not to complain louder, <laughs> to call another show and make a de, you know bold declarative statement. It's uh, it's to start working on yourself. And the crazy thing about it is that's always been the solution. You've heard me mention Andy Frizzella and and his podcast. And and, and again, I'm going to offer this disclaimer. Andy is not for everybody. This guy cusses a lot. But his message is one that I think, I, I wish more people would hear. I, look, I wish he could deliver the message without, uh, without the profanity, but that's, that's Andy. Andy punctuates uh, what he's saying with a lot of uh, four-letter emphasis. And, you know, it's, uh, if you can let those words bounce off you, at the base of his message, at the bottom of the message is... Get yourself together. Become the most excellent version of yourself and you will change the world. Okay, he just he just takes a little more forceful approach to getting that message out. But I think he's 100% right. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. A quick thank you to the sponsors who helped to uh, enable me to do what I do, whatever that is. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That is the uh, Modern Conservative Podcast, my friend John Harvey. So, in, in kind of a similar vein to what I was sharing with you in the last segment about how, you know, you really can never reform the world, but you can certainly reform yourself. I just want to offer a couple of quick thoughts. This is from an article from Gary D. Barnett, writing for LewRockwell.com. He starts with a, with a quote from Albert Camus. You will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. 
You will never live if you are looking for the meaning of life. That sounds kind of profound, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's deeply philosophical, but listen to the explanation Gary Barnett offers. He says, it is best, I think, not to spend one's precious time in this life in pursuit of things that have never been known and cannot be known. Both the beauty and ugliness of life are in the moment. Real life is meant to be lived, not dissected and pondered to find some ultimate or secret meaning. And that's not to say that individual responsibility should be abandoned. But it's to say that one knows not what his life will bring, what suffering will occur, what riches might be gained, what natural happiness is possible, or when he will wither and die. To waste this life in pursuit of future wishes, to live by hiding from yourself in hope or in favor of the collective crowd, to destroy your individual spirit and time on this earth in hopes of eternal bliss, is to seek an escape from this reality that is your very existence. That is not the way to confront and conquer conflict, to gain inner peace, to experience love and nature, or to be a motivating influence for those you cherish and those who may be moved by your presence. Now, there's a time I would have really thought, okay, what's he, what's he trying to say here? And, and this is my interpretation. Now, I could be wrong. You might be hearing something entirely different, but I think what he's saying is, you know, if we're, if we're focused too much on, well, I want to know, you know, what lies ahead, or I'm, I'm too focused, I'm living in the future. That's a good way to cause anxiety. Whereas living in the moment means, you know, you have to be a little more focused on what's happening right now where you are. And I think there's another aspect of this too, and that is, you know, you cannot successfully avoid adversity, not in its entirety. And I say this as someone who, well, Let's just say I put a high priority on security for for a great deal of my life. And I still prefer security. Now, what do I mean by security? Okay, I'll give you the simple definition. This is, for me, this, this is what security feels like. Security is knowing that uh, my family loves me, that I am providing for my family. And if I can be really blunt, this is, you know, one of the greatest senses of security I ever felt in my life was when I watched my bank account grow a little bit each month. It didn't have to grow exponentially. I didn't have to be filthy rich. But if I could pay my bills and still watch my savings grow every single month, that was a feeling of security. Now, it may be different for other people. You know, a reliable car, a good pair of shoes, you know, um, food on the table. There are a lot of different aspects of our lives. But something that I've, I've come to realize is that Security, as, as, as much as it's, you know, a, a desirable thing, is also, it, it, it can become a stumbling block in that we tend to, uh, we, can, we can trade off life itself for the pursuit of security. In other words, you're going to have adversity. It's going to come. It is a part of life. And if we were spending too much time trying to avoid it or trying to, to you know, have everything around us to, to negate the possibility of any adversity, we miss out on some of the best parts of life. Now, that's not to say adversity is fun. It's not. I'm, I'm watching. Uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and confess something to you. One of the reasons why I've been spread a little bit thin and, and a little bit hit and miss the last few weeks is because um, not quite two months ago, my mom's health took a very nasty turn. And it was, it was not, you know, from, from oh, a life-threatening illness. 
It was from uh, incredible pain from pinched nerves and, and bulging discs in her back. Now, if you've ever experienced back pain, you understand that uh, this is not just, oh, yeah, it's an occasional twinge. I don't know why you don't just walk it off. It, it's crippling. And I mean that in a very literal sense. It is it is crippling, and it will take away a person's mobility. And, uh, and when you're dealing with constant, endless, excruciating pain, it, it's very, very miserable. So she's, she's getting a master's level, maybe PhD level education in adversity. And this kind of spills over because, you know, in a, in a flash, I went from, oh, I'm a concerned son who lives nearby uh, my, my mom to uh, I'm a part-time live-in caretaker now. And uh, so I'm, I, I'm having to adapt in ways I did not anticipate. It's, it's not that we didn't see this time coming. Okay, with with age, you know, that there are going to be, you know, considerations and complications and, and end of life decisions that that will eventually approach. But whew, I don't know. I pictured them pulling up and politely, you know, coming to a stop and saying, well, hop in and let's uh, start the journey here. and We'll figure this out. No. It came plowing into me at 60 miles an hour and just basically hit me and told me, hang on, <laughs> bumpy road ahead. And, and away we went. So I'm not, I'm not looking for sympathy, but I'll, I will tell you the, the stress I have felt over the last month and a half has been some of the most intense that I've ever experienced in my life. Yet I'm not about to resign myself to this mindset of, well, therefore I am a victim and I'm in perpetual victimhood. What I've learned instead is that no matter how good life is going at the moment, it's not always going to be that way. And that's, that's not fatalistic, you know, oh, well, nihilism of, uh, it's all, it's all, we're just dust in the wind, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, nothing amounts to anything. It's, it's just that there are going to be times that suck, but there are also a lot of good times as well. And if you want the good times, you got to be willing to embrace the bad ones. Otherwise, you're going to be hiding in a corner or trying to hide in the crowd and trying to avoid adversity. When instead... The better approach is to take the blow, accept it for what it is, and keep moving forward. But if you're going to do that, you've got to learn to value yourself enough to be willing to suffer for the sake of becoming something more. And what that is is going to differ from person to person. In this case, um, you know, I clearly, I need some help becoming a more selfless person. That's a refinement that needs to happen in my life. And, and the pain is real. But it's also temporary. And that opportunity for refinement and growth is also very real. And I think about this quote from Helen Keller. She said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And so when, when those occasional times come along, and I find myself uh, thinking, you know, Brian, life sucks at this moment, or at least what's happening in my life right now is not as pleasant and happy and comfortable as I would like it to be. That's when I remember that uh, it's better to choose to live a life of daring adventure, to embrace the, the difficult parts and recognize them for what they are. Yes, they're not pleasant, but they're also temporary and to keep moving forward. I know there, you, you probably figured this out long before I did. 
It seems like every direction I turn, I see people who are going through very difficult things. And the ones who seem to weather that storm, whatever it may be, and weather it well, are the ones who have adopted the idea that you just you face adversity with courage and with a determination to keep moving towards uh, you know whatever it is that matters to you. And in the process, for lack of a better metaphor, you become a diamond. It takes time. It takes heat. It takes pressure. But I happen to know a lot of diamonds on a personal level, and I'm very grateful for their example because they show me that I can do it as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I would invite you to. That's pretty much it. Go to thebrianheidshow.com. If you click on show notes down at the bottom of the page, there's a subscribe button. No other obligation other than just give me your email. I won't spam you. I'm not going to sell you anything. I'll just share with you the, the notes that I put together each day that I do this program. So it was very interesting last week watching the story unfold about uh, national security leaks and, oh, 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 the very important people in the U.S. government. Uh, they seem very bothered by the fact that the truth appears to have slipped out about some things they would rather have kept concealed regarding uh, the war in Ukraine. And by the way, there's some pretty disturbing stuff here, like finding out, well, yes, actually, the uh, U.S. does actively have soldiers who are in Ukraine fighting alongside the Ukrainians. Now, just like Vietnam, they're just there as advisors, but the bottom line is we, we have an active role in a war that really has nothing to do with us. I wanted to share with you this uh, commentary from Thomas L. Knapp. Mainstream media turncoats on national security leaks. He says, on April 14th, the U.S. Department of Justice charged Airman First Class Jack Teixeira with copying and sharing information connected with or relating to the national defense. Now, the government alleges that Teixeira is the man behind the leaks of classified information which worked their way from the Massachusetts Air National Guard to a Discord chat server for gamers and thence to social media and finally and unfortunately only very partially to U.S. mainstream media. At this point, due to the mainstream media's refusal to do its job, the public doesn't know very much about the content of the leaked information, but from what we do know, that information had little or nothing to do with any plausible conception of national defense, at least where the United States is concerned. Thomas L. Knapp says, look, last time I checked, Ukraine was neither a U.S. state nor a U.S. territory, nor, for that matter, located anywhere near the U.S., U.S. involvement there has nothing to do with national defense and everything to do with declining empires raging against the dying of their respective lights at the expense of their subjects. He says the information not only shouldn't have been classified, it shouldn't have been compiled or generated. If there's a crime involved, it was committed at that end, not at Teixeira's. But he says, really, that is business as usual. While Julian Assange and Edward Snowden may have been more mindful and purposeful in their disclosures of U.S. government crimes and peccadilloes, Teixeira, even if he's guilty, did America a similar service incidental to what sounds like a youthful ego trip. 
If the whole incident exposes any new or novel issue, that issue involves the question Nikita Mazarov asked at the intercept. At the intercept, rather, why did journalists help the Justice Department identify a leaker? By the way, that is the $64,000 question. Tom says, in theory, journalism's job is to inform the public. In practice, mainstream journalism has, at least for the past few decades, last few decades rather, largely become the government's stenography pool, reliably reporting every official assertion as fact and seldom asking pointed questions about any subject more important than which politician has been having sex with which porn star. When there's an exception, journalists at least bother to protect their sources. Someone who leaks to the New York Times or Washington Post can reasonably expect those publications to resist outing them, even under court order. But since Teixeira allegedly failed to consult the very special important people at the Times or Post and give them the scoops they so love, instead allegedly sharing his information with some gamer friends to make himself look cool, well, the mainstream media has switched sides. Instead of investigating the content of the leak, they investigated the leaker. Saving the FBI the trouble instead of informing the public, they enthusiastically went after someone who did their job for them. And this is not the first time, of course. They threw Assange and Snowden under the bus, too, but only once they'd squeezed all the juice from their scoops. Yeah, they do, and they'd take credit for it. Well, now that we know this, now we know this. Eh, we're not the ones sitting in jail, but <clears throat> they'll gladly, you know, stand there and aggrandize themselves at the expense of whistleblowers. Thomas L. Knapp says, We no longer have to ask whose side mainstream media are really on. It's certainly not the public's. Amen. In fact, I want to back this up uh, with a commentary from Jordan Schachtel, one of the better reporters and investigative reporters out there. And he says, if you want to be a whistleblower, well, you better support the current thing. He talks about how uh, last week, camera crews well-positioned with the perfect shot to take it all in, watched federal agents arrest a man for allegedly leaking classified Pentagon documents, mostly related to U.S. involvement in the proxy ongoing proxy war in Ukraine. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira has been accused of leaking sensitive U.S. intelligence documents on a Discord server. For those who are unaware, Discord is an Internet messaging platform for a variety of like-minded communities. Now, according to the corporate media's reporting, Teixeira was a member of an online Discord chat named Thug Shaker Central, which reportedly consisted of a couple dozen young men who used it for unfiltered conversations and sharing memes. And it was in this chat where Teixeira allegedly leaked the classified information. One anonymous member of the chat told the New York Times, This guy was a Christian, anti-war, just wanted to inform some of his friends about what's going on. We have some people in our group who are in Ukraine. We like fighting games. We like war games. Another member of the Discord chat told the Washington Post Teixeira had a dark view of the government. Ah, no kidding. It seems there's a concerted effort in the legacy press to paint a personal picture of Mr. Teixeira as an anti-government, Trump-loving right-winger who is undeserving of whistleblower protections. It's not that he's harming the reputation of the current thing. He's religious. He loves guns. He's a maggot. Blue Anons activated. Jordan says somewhere along the way, the documents were reportedly moved from the Discord chat to a variety of public online forums. Now, it appears the DOJ intends on throwing the book at Teixeira and charging him under the Espionage Act, which can carry a heavy prison sentence. 
Jordan Schachtel says, Your humble correspondent has not seen the primary documents firsthand, but is aware of them due to media outlets reposting the classified images. Dozens of leaked images and plans provided evidence that the Pentagon slash NATO is much more intimately involved in its proxy war against Russia than previously understood. Specifically, U.S. troops have mission-critical functions in Ukraine, despite never having declared war against Russia. Not only is the Biden administration actively monitoring the Zelensky government's every move, according to the docs, but they're also effectively running point on the war effort. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who understands the power dynamics of the Russia-Ukraine spat, but it certainly clears up any doubts about who ultimately is in charge in Kiev. And there's a lot of chatter on social media fairly suggesting that Teixeira must have been a patsy or something similar because a 21-year-old shouldn't have been able to access such important classified information. But Jordan Schachtel says, let me remind readers that the man formerly known as Bradley Manning was also a junior enlisted service member in his early 20s when he leaked a bunch of classified information to WikiLeaks. The myth of institutional competence is just that, a myth. And the Uniparty in D.C. has been noticeably but unsurprisingly silent about Teixeira's potential protections as an alleged whistleblower. And that's because the alleged leaks attached to him could jeopardize the standing of the current thing. The people in charge in Washington only like universally approved whistleblowers, and they declare the likes of Edward Snowden and and company as traitors to democracy and and such. So, will the institutional press corps stand up for speaking truth to power? Jordan Schachtel says, of course not. At the Pentagon presser, the military's journalists paradoxically united behind demands for a more robust security state that could better shield information from the public. And he lists a whole slew of questions from uh, reporters from the AP, from Fox News, from Military.com, Voice of America, CBS, Defense Scoop, CNN, Politico, all asking, what steps have the... Has the DOD taken to reduce the number of people with access to this? In other words, how can you prevent people from finding the truth better in the future? Isn't that something? Jordan Schachtel says the Uniparty will tell you that a career intelligence agent who spied on the former president is a certified whistleblower. The same people will tell you that the alleged Ukraine whistleblower is a criminal because he almost made it more difficult for their racket to continue. And really, that is the key. If in any way it actually threatens the status quo or threatens to reveal the, the depth of, uh, of deception being engaged in by those in power at the moment, yeah, the press is not going to tell us about it for the sake of, hey, you know, that our government's involved in some really nasty stuff here. Nope. Because their job is to manage the narrative. I go back to uh, what Thomas L. Knapp said, and that is, you know, they're not on your side. It's been interesting to see people argue about this and, you know, well, look at the harm this has done. This is harming U.S. foreign policy as if U.N. forest policy or U.S. foreign policy is somehow, you know, the, the most important thing. And that's what keeps us safest at night. But it's not. In fact, if anything, it's uh, threatening to undo whatever remaining safety we might be enjoying. So I like to see the cockroaches scurry when the light comes on. But I don't like the idea that the press is actually helping protect the cockroaches. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yeah, here was here's another story that uh, <laughs> kind of took on a life of its own. Oh, I'm so tired of, of the woke juggernaut pushing into every area of our life. And, and, and I think wokeness may be actually reaching a tipping point of sorts. Not necessarily a positive one for those who are pushing that agenda, but the snapback is is about to begin. It may be beginning right now, and it's it's going to be epic. Talking about the Bud Light fiasco. And look, I'm not a beer drinker, so it's not like I have a dog in this fight. But if you want to alienate your customer base, I think that Bud Light and, and their, their brand managers probably have done about as good a job of this as any. Got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, who actually has, I think, a very solid take on what the Bud Light fiasco reveals about the ruling class. He asked, what were they thinking? How did someone believe that making trans woman uh, Dylan Mulvaney the icon of a Bud Light ad campaign complete with a beer can with Mulvaney's image on it, what made him think that would be a good be good for sales? With an ad featuring this person vamping around in the most preposterously possible way. Dylan, who had previously been interviewed on trans issues by President Biden himself, was celebrating 365 days of girlhood with a grotesque, misogynistic caricature that would discuss just about the whole market for this beer. Indeed, this person's cosplay might well be designed to discredit the entire political agenda of gender dysphoriacs. Sure enough, because we don't have mandates on what beers you must buy, sales of the beer plummeted. The parent company, Anheuser-Busch's stock, lost $5 billion, or 4% in value, since the ad campaign rollout. Sales have fallen 50 to 70%. Now there's worry within the company of a widening boycott to all their brands. A local Missouri distributor of the product canceled an appearance by the Budweiser Clydesdale horses due to public anger. Now, Jeffrey Tucker points out, ads are supposed to sell products not prompt a massive public backlash that results in billions in losses. This mistake could be for the ages, making a distinct departure from corporate deference to wackadoodle ideas from the academy and a push for more connection to on-the-ground realities. Now, the person who made the miscalculation is Alyssa Gordon Heinerscheid, vice president in charge of marketing for Bud Light. She explained that her intention was to make the beer the king of woke beers. She wanted to shift away from the out-of-touch frat party image to one of inclusivity. By all accounts, she actually believed this. More likely, she was rationalizing actions that would earn her bragging rights within her social circle. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, digging through her personal biography, we find all the predictable signs of tremendous detachment from regular life. Elite boarding school. Groton, $65,000 a year. Harvard, Wharton School, coveted internship at General Foods and straight to the top VP at the biggest beverage company in the world. Somehow through all that, nothing entered her brain apart from elite opinion on how the world should should work with theories never actually tested by real-world marketing demands. Would that she had worked at Chick-fil-A at some point in her teen years, perhaps even preserving some friend relationships ever since. It might have protected her from this disastrous error. Error, rather. She's a perfect symbol of a problem that affects 
rather afflicts high-end corporate and government culture. That is, a shocking blindness toward the mainstream of American life, including working classes and other people less privileged. Jeffrey Tucker says they are invisible to this crowd. And her type is pervasive in corporate America with its huge layers of management developed over 20 years of loose credit and push for token representation at the highest levels. He says, we've seen this manifest over three years and ruling class types imposed lockdowns, masks, and vaccine mandates on the whole population without regard to the consequences. And with full expectation that the food will continue to be delivered to their doorsteps, no matter how many days, months, or years they stay at home and stay safe. The working classes, meanwhile, were shoved out in front of the pathogen to make their assigned contribution to herd immunity so that the rich and privileged could preserve their clean state of being, making TikTok videos and issuing edicts from their safe spaces for two or even three years. Jeffrey Tucker says in the late 19th century, the blindness of class detachment was a problem that so consumed Karl Marx that he became possessed with the desire to overthrow class distinctions between labor and capital. He kicked off a new age of the classless society under the leadership of the vanguard of the proletarian classes. In every country where his dreams became a reality, however, a protected elite took over and secured themselves from the consequences of their deluded dreams. The people who in recent decades seem to have drunk so deeply from the well of Marxian tradition seem to be repeating that experience with complete disinterest in the lower classes, while pushing a deepening chasm that only became worse in the lockdown years in which they have controlled the levers of power. Now, he says, this was startling to watch. And he says, I could hardly believe what was happening. Then one day, the incredibly obvious dawned on me. All official opinion in this country, and even in the whole world, government, media, corporations, technology, emanated from the same upper echelons of the class structure. It was people with elite educations who had the time to shape public opinion. They are the ones on Twitter, in the newsrooms, fussing with the codes and enjoying the laptop life of a permanent bureaucrat. Their social circles were the same. They knew no one who cut trees, butchered cows, drove trucks, fixed cars, and met payroll in a small restaurant. The workers and peasants are the people the elite so otherized that they became nothing more than non-playing characters who make work stuff but are not worthy of their attention or time. And he says the result was a massive transfer of wealth upwards in the social ladder as digital brands, technology, and Peloton thrived, while everyone else faced a barrage of ill health, debt, and inflation. As classes have grown more stratified, and yes, there is a reason to worry about the gap between the rich and the poor when malleability is restricted, the intellectual producers of policy and opinion have constructed their own bubble to protect themselves from being soiled by contrary points of view. They want the whole world to be their own safe space, regardless of the victims. So he asks the question, would lockdowns have happened in any other kind of world? Not likely. And it would not have happened if the overlords did not have the technology to carry on their lives as normal while pretending that no one was really suffering from their scheme. The Bud Light case is especially startling because the advent of commercial society in the high Middle Ages and through the Industrial Revolution was supposed to mitigate against this kind of myopic stratification. And this has always been the most compelling critique of Marx. He was raging against a system that was gradually winnowing away the very demarcations in classes he, he decried.
Joseph Schumpeter in 1919 wrote an essay in this book, on this topic rather, in his book titled Imperialism and Social Classes. And he highlighted how the commercial ethos dramatically changed the class system. Schumpeter said the warlord was automatically the leader of his people in virtually every respect. The modern industrialist is anything but such a leader. And this explains a great deal about the stability of the former's position and the instability of the latter's. But what becomes when the corporate elites working with government themselves become the warlords? The foundations of market capitalism begin to erode. The workers become ever more alienated from the final consumption of the product they have made possible. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, It's been typical of people like me, pro-market libertarians, to ignore the issue of class and its impact on social and political structures. We inherited the view of Frederick Bastiat, that the good society is about cooperation between everyone and not class conflict, much less class war. We've been suspicious of people who rage against wealthy inequality and social stratification. And yet we do not live in such market conditions. The social and economic systems of the West are increasingly bureaucratized, hobbled by credentialism, and regulated. And this has severely impacted class mobility. Indeed, for many of these structures, exclusion of the unwashed is the whole point. He says the ruling class themselves have ever more the mindset as described by Thorstein Veblen. Only the ignorable do actual work while the truly successful indulge in leisure and conspicuous consumption as much as their means allow. One supposes this doesn't hurt anyone until it does. And this certainly happened in the very recent history as the conspicuous consumers harnessed the power of states all over the world to serve their interests exclusively. The result was a calamity for rights and liberties won over a thousand years of struggle. So the markets are brutally punishing the brand and the company for this profound error that Budweiser or Bud Light has made. He says this actually points the way to the future. People should have the right to their own choices about the kind of life they want to live and the products and services that they want to consume. He says the dystopia of lockdowns and woke hegemony of public opinion, complete with censorship, have become the policy to overturn if the workers are ever to throw off the chains that bind them. And the boycotts of Bud Light are but a beginning. Hey, we can only hope so. Check out these articles and more in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.